0: Welcome to the podcast that teaches you how to transform your life and your business. Here is your host, Rick Hyland, and this is CI for Life. Hey, it's Rick Highland with CI for Life Podcasts. Welcome back. I have a special guest today, Neil Twa. Neil, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on, Rick. I appreciate it.
0: I'm so thrilled that you're here. You've had a lot of success in e-commerce, and so I'm excited to hear about your story and how that might be relevant to listeners trying to grow their business. But let's start with your background. Tell us a little bit about your story.
1: Well, I won't bore you too long and I'll get into some value content because I want people to, you know, get something from today's call. Even if, you know, just uh, to listen in and maybe glean some information about business or life or entrepreneurial or e-com or, you know, all of these fun things. Uh, But in simple terms, I've been involved in it since I dropped out of college to go get into e-commerce. I'm not terribly old, but the Internet has changed things so fast in our world uh, that by the time I was in college, uh, which is a long story. I didn't actually want to go to college. I wanted to try to get into the Air Force Academy, but I'm too tall to get into the fighter jets, and I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and they wouldn't let me. Uh, get in the cockpit, and I said, well, screw that. I'm going to college. So I went to college on a full-ride music scholarship um, from cla- uh, classical ch- uh, jazz trumpet and realized that by year three, I was going to be living in a van down by the river. Now, at that point, it wasn't cool to live in a van down by the river. Today, that would be like the cool thing to do. So I was like a hipster before hip was hip.
0: Uh, Chris, um, but Bar- it, Chris Farley and you, yeah. Yeah,
1: dude, me and him down in, a, down in a van down by the river. Yeah, so I realized in my third year, I had to do something, either stay in academia and try to glean what they were learning there because there was nothing – uh, that they were teaching at this point, it was we were doing. We were literally installing Pentium computers and networking and that email, and this was all brand new, and nobody knew what they were doing. Or I had to go to the corporate world where the other money was being spent. So I chose to jump out and go to the corporate world. And in that part, I kind of taught myself programming. I got lucky in in life and ended up in the division of PCS as it was launching the first mobile phone inside of Sprint mm. uh, and got to be a part of the first brick phone launch uh, as that went to market. My little team of... Uh, technical people was overseeing the knowledge management division that the uh, employees and the and the call agents were using to try to support the calls as this was going to market because it was growing so exponentially fast, they needed information. And we had a really small team working on about 50,000 web pages that were being used inside of that. So over the course of that career within Sprint, as we grew, I was the 5,000th employee pulled from some contractors and, and inside and got employed in there uh, to 80,000 employees by the time that I left and 25,000 call reps. And so it turned into a monster organization of mobile devices um, and got to oversee the knowledge management component and be a part of the uh, building of knowledge management and artificial intelligence and, and this things of systemized knowledge base that was inside of Sprint. And with that knowledge and information and the first real knowledge management launch inside of an enterprise, Um, IBM came in to help support the next level of growth with Sprint. The partnership took off really great. I learned very quickly in business, it's who you know that gets you there and what you know that keeps you there. And so that opportunity was basically figure out who I needed to know and then go learn what I needed to know in order to keep myself there. And so I got involved with IBM and ended up getting a handshake job in Armonk um, from a transfer there. And so I went to work for IBM. Uh, Got to fly around the the world, basically helping uh, organizations and enterprise learn knowledge management and implement it into their systems and people, processes and technology and that kind of stuff. But I was learning a lot about latent semantic search engines and the web. And we were doing amazing things with giant systems and got to work with the smart group at Watson and R-Monk on the uh, part of the division for the supercomputer there that we were working with. Uh, for knowledge management and human machine language learning and latent semantic technologies and a lot of stuff that we're using today, every day from Amazon to Google, et cetera, was a part of what um, was coming out of these groups. Yeah. Um, so I decided to leave. In 2007, IBCM decided to say, hey, we want you to leave because we're moving your agency component to um, your division to Argentina. I'm like, well, I don't want to go to Argentina. And they're like, well, you can apply for another job inside the company. And I said, ah, this is this moment where I was like, had that division jumping out of college. What do I do now? There's this dividing moment. And like that jump I made from college, I said, I'm jumping out of IBM. I already understood the risk. So I went ahead and took it. Uh, If anybody says there's a perfect time to start a business, they're wrong. They're lying to you. Because I jumped out of the first thing that happened is I got married. Uh, In the process. And then my wife and I, we got pregnant about eight months into that Uh, medical issues. We did not know um, suddenly hit her very hard in that pregnancy. And so she could no longer work. So I was starting a new business. We got married and we had a baby all in the same year. Uh, That really put a lot of challenges on our first year of marriage uh, and the business and went from very high incomes together to zero income all within a year. Uh, and while starting a new business. So these are challenges of entrepreneurial life. These are the way things go. This is the spaghetti uh, of the entrepreneur, uh, you know, entrepreneurial plate that nobody really understands um, because they're moving, you know, in this concept of linear fashion from zero to a 100. And what actually happens is you're just trying to straighten out one noodle on a plate of spaghetti uh as you're trying to figure your way through so this. So many
0: spaghetti noodles.
1: Yeah. So many noodles. So what do I do? What am I after? Who do I want to become? I wanted to be an e-commerce. That's why I got out of college, but I knew it wasn't ready to to do that yet. And I, I had some side hustle things. I started a game server company on the side while I was working at IBM. And so I was always pushing to go out side. My my uh entrepreneurial component didn't come from my father. He was a hardworking blue collar um uh, middle you know uh, lower middle class working guy. We had things we needed but never what we wanted. So I had to go mow lawns to make money. So I'd always had that hustle mentality uh, to get out there if I wanted to do more. And my mentor in life, uh, eventually he accidentally died from a plane crash, but it was my uncle. And he was kind of the business entrepreneurial, started a boat company. So he gave me the ideas and the mindset of thinking very differently and so I was always felt trapped in that corporate environment. Always knew I had to get out of it. It was never really for me. I was just waiting for that moment to just get out of it, so and do whatever. But got into management consulting and and run a management division that ended up uh, subcontracting back to IBM, and um, uh, got to do some really cool things with global seats and travel around and be on boards and and be in the global side of the, of a consulting and grew up a small practice of people who supported public and private sector consulting at the management consulting level. Uh, until I got into more affiliate marketing and online marketing to help grow that business and found out I had an aptitude for paid media. So I got really good at buying traffic and arbitraging the cost of it as leads for businesses and making businesses very successful by sending them lots of leads. Um, and then realized because I was making them so much money, I needed to close that loop and actually finish the last part of it, which was my own offer, my own business component, my own brand. And I knew that e-commerce is where I wanted to go. So I started into that, which led me to Amazon <laughs> in 2011. Uh, and Amazon was just that small, growing, fast, you know, agile business. And it suddenly was allowing physical products to be sold with beyond books. And they were doing, they bought a company called FBA fulfilled by Amazon and they implemented that into their merger and they got this big infrastructure. And I'm like, well, great. They handle the customer. They handle the division. They handle the delivery. I just need to work on the logistics and the marketing and the business. I'm like, that's what I can do. This is great. Let me see what I can play around with. And found out that this engine was just uh, literally a part of a latent semantic search engine code I base I recognized from my days at IBM. So uh, they had taken and built a, a component of that latent semantic search engine into this artificial intelligence that's behind Amazon. They call it the A9 engine or the A10 engine now. It was literally driving knowledge, but the delivery of the knowledge inside of amazon.com was the product. So they'd kind of taken it and shifted it to e-com. Very smart, very unique. Yeah. But I figured it out. I was like, oh my gosh, they, they're they're running the same engine we were building in the IBM days. So I went in and for the first 18 months uh, between 2011 and end of 2012, and just started throwing products at the engine, trying to see what it would do. Like I, I knew it was learning and I knew it was looking at the titles and the graphics and it was looking at the tech and I'm like, I could figure this thing out. And I started to figure it out. And when it uh, started to take off faster than I could fund it, I... Uh, ended up finding a partner who helped me in the logistics and operational side. We kind of crossed paths together. And at the same time, we we're like, hey, we want to try this together. And 10 years later, he's still my business partner. Very wonderful man. He's the right half of my operational logistics finance brain. And we just started building brands together on Amazon because I could rank them fast. And he could handle the logistics and the management, uh, the back end of the finance component. I was handling the front end marketing logistics ranking component. And together, we just started crushing the snot out of it. Um, fast forward, we've been doing that for 10 years now, building brands, stuff. we've ran over $100 million in sales through FBA between ourselves and our collective businesses uh, okay. that we uh, have ended our, our client control or within our mentoring and coaching. Um, the largest case study to date that we started with a, a company in 2014 sold for $72 million last year, uh, which was an Amazon native brand. Uh, it's possible to grow it to that size uh, and to see it work. It's possible for some of those models to fail. Because uh, Amazon is a tough market. One company just failed this last week because they were the largest FBA wholesaler and they couldn't keep their margins. And their SPAC completely fell apart, their special acquisition corporation. And so they went out of business because they couldn't keep the margins. On the other hand, a native private label branded business, it started on Amazon, a cosmetics company, sold for $630 million. So there are differences in the two models. And these are things people need to understand about why we do e-com in a private label branded business-driven model with brand registrations and trademarks and intellectual property, we don't just flip and wholesale products for profit in more of a pure capitalistic form because it's not as profitable and it will run out. (laughs) So we take a very business builder approach to this market. I believe that's had uh, a lot of success and what we've gained together and with our clients over the years.
0: So I'm going to ask you to unveil those four or five key success factors to do. Absolutely. You can head to the 630 versus the failure. But
1: yeah, yeah. I,
0: do, I also coach a lot of millennials and we have a lot of millennials that listen and uh, awesome. on career management. I have a course on teachable called Millennial Money, Rich and Happy. And basically, my advice is exactly what you did. Uh, go in like a company like IBM or whatever field you want to go to learn as much as you can. Yes. And then go out on your own. That's where real independence. Well, but, but yeah. you have to, you know, obviously there's high failure rates and there's lots of lessons there, but yeah. before we jump into those lessons and how to do it right, what career advice do you have for millennials as they're striving to find their path mm. Think come to mind there as you as think just career counseling?
1: Yeah. I mean, it- there's this this idea, I think, that we all have to some degree uh, in terms of ambition and growth and what we feel we may be worth and we're not necessarily being paid now. Uh, I think there's a balance between understanding patience and tenacity uh, in in your place where you currently can succeed. And that success in that place, wherever it is, wherever you're being paid, wherever you currently feel you're getting value – uh, is something that you need to find your happiness in for the time being, right? Because honestly, you're not going to find your joy in a job. Nobody does. At the end of the day, joy will come through reward, fun, and profit, and working with good people. And that is typically something you're doing on your own in a creative state, a purposeful state, uh, a meaningful in- a meaningful impact to the environment, to people, to other things that are around you that give you purpose and drive beyond just a paycheck. Because remember, most people, as Warren Buffett said, are one paycheck away from poverty, And because of that stress and concern that you constantly have, you are usually trying to seek something above your current station. And instead, you're not focused on doing right where you are right now and allowing others to lift you up into that next station. If you keep trying to push yourself into that next station, you're typically going to find that nobody wants to help that person. Right. They want people want to help other people and people leave managers, not companies. So you're going to look at where you are and the person that's just above you. And what you want to do is find out a way to like them. You may not like them. You may not like where they are. You may not appreciate their management style or things. But you need to find out. Because remember what I said a minute ago. It's who you know that gets you there. And it's what you know that keeps you there. I'm not saying kiss butt and brown nose. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misread what I'm saying. What I'm saying is find a way to add value to that person's life. Find a way to add value to what they're doing. And from that, they will reward you. Because they are the ones that are gatekeeping your next step within that business. The lateral jumping of business models. Okay. And I've done that in the past is one way to level up your success or level up your position. But just remember you may be jumping from the fire, pan, uh, fire into the frying pan. You need to be careful with lateral moves just because of financial reasons only. That will just be one other reason to steal your happiness and joy in life. You may not recognize it initially because you're going after what feels like a new opportunity or more money. But in actuality, you might just be jumping into the fire. You need to be careful with that. Be strategic. Think a little bit into the three to five years, but also remember it's the daily, weekly, monthly activities that will make all the difference in where you succeed and where you go, right? If you stay so you know, future-minded, you're of no earthly good today, and today is sufficient unto itself, so work on just what you're going to do today and put it to bed at night and don't wake up with it the next day. If you carry that baggage, it will add up every day, every week, every month, and pretty soon you're carrying a hundred pound bag of luggage behind you that no one else wants to pick up.
0: Man, you you I mean, I I hope I hope millennials would listen. That was amazing advice on both how to do well in your current job, if it's in a company, you know, that the idea of patience and tenacity, but get very good at your craft, right?
1: Get very good and, at your craft
0: and make your boss successful. If you want, if if your choice is to stay in that company, yes, uh, find out what's important, make them successful. And become very good. I mean, you'll be super valuable in that company or in your startup.
1: Well, and you might find that that person's willing to help you out of the company when the time comes because they may be fighting the same struggle as you are at just a different level above you. And if you can get into that bit of camaraderie, and I'm not even talking about friendship because there's a balance between professional and friendship also, that will allow them to also understand that if you're trying to succeed, there's they don't want to necessarily hold you back. If there's a conflict... And you may feel that conflict and you may be a part of resonating that frequency of of conflict between them. You need to figure out how to change that frequency. And usually you're the one in control of that. It's your mind, it's your mouth, and it's what comes out of your heart and comes through your mouth is what's going to make the difference in whether or not that person receives that information and is operating on a frequency that you are or whether or not you're just clashing with them.
0: Okay. In your case, how did you know it was the right time in 2007 to hop out and then 2011 to make the transition? Did- Was there some analysis you did? It was something in your gut? Like I I love- Call it a gut
1: feeling. feeling. No, if I stopped to analyze it. Yeah, no, literally it just like I realized I could no longer stay in the pain of the position that I was in with my career in college. I knew that I reached a position in my corporate life where I could no longer stand the pain of being in that position. Pain typically makes challenge and challenge makes change. And if you're not willing to accept the pain and the challenge where you are, you're never going to change. And that is actually going to grow you into a, a scarcity mindset yep. uh, of one in which t- paycheck to paycheck is literally a poverty, uh, poverty-driven poverty mindset. Okay, And at the end of this, what you have to realize is there is abundance. While things scream recession or scream challenges or scream there's no money, and maybe because of where you're setting in life right now, you may feel like there's no money or access to it. That is actually a perception of, of your reality. It is not actual reality in someone else's perception. So from where I stand, there's more than enough money. There's stupid money everywhere. There's money available to people to do stupid things with. Not that you should do that. The end result is there is plenty of money. And you don't have to look too much farther than the corporations or the world we live in in our government to see how much money is flowing everywhere, in some cases very stupid money. But there is a lot of money out there. So if you can change your realization from scarcity to abundance, you will change your perception of your current position and realize certain risks you're setting in right now are actually more risky for you than taking a risk on a job or a side hustle or building up a business and getting that either that capital or whatever's necessary to go out and do that. You need to understand those risks. There's four things, as we talked about a minute ago, that are going to make or break that success. If you want me to kind of start breaking some of that down, we can Good. go right after that.
0: Great, great um, career advice, by the way. But let's move on to. Yeah.
1: How do you well, see- the career you advice, you advice you- is, yeah, the career advice is really for some of them who maybe feel like they're more corporate driven. And the idea of entrepreneurialism isn't really in your blood, it not in your DNA. And it may not be something you feel extremely comfortable ever wanting to do. Just understand there are risks to both those mentalities, there's risks to both of those tracks, there's rewards. I know personally that if I stayed in IBM, ultimately I can envision that this is not something I will ever hand to my children. It is not a legacy and a heritage to hand them a forty hour to eighty hour week job. What I wanted to hand it to to you them realized was to,
0: you wanted to do that. And so I
1: yeah. didn't want to do that i wanted to hand them the opportunity right. of right. knowledge and power and an abundance oh, of creating and building something that they have some control over that isn't just time based and trading time for money but has opportunities beyond what they may be currency currently see or within their current vision only because of what they see is what's available to them now Uh, But as you level your groups, level your network and level changes, you suddenly start to see the different levels of abundance as people see them very differently in their time and money aspects, right? And I have been uh, privy and blessed to be in the company of some people who are very wealthy. And because of that, it's helped me to see very different approaches to money and thinking uh, that have gotten them to where they are. But it's not something that no one can't learn. It's just you have to reach those different levels of comfort in your comfort zone, so you have to understand how to approach it. And with e-commerce, I found it as an alternative to wealth building, okay? It's an alternative wealth building process, all right? And I can return money under more control in my business, deploying it into physical assets, than giving that money to a hedge fund manager or putting it in the stock market and taking yesterday's hit. So what I didn't experience, others did experience because my cash flow and operations and capital are within my company and within physical products, Right. So I, my alternative to Wealth Without Wall Street is building physical e-com business assets in a both you know, tangible physical asset with a virtual storefront. A combination of the two gets me cash out of the bank and out of inflationary state and into a physical product state that I can then return at a higher profit. I can move with uh, stagflation or inflation or deflation, and I can move through recession or depression with my products. And this is where a lot of people will get stuck if they don't have that kind of flexibility. But e-commerce and physical products give you that flexibility. So as the market moves, we can move. And that's very powerful to understand. So what are those steps? And the first one is, what the heck do I even sell? Most people are like, okay, that that's great. I get e-commerce. I bought stuff on Amazon or another website and I've shopped online. Great. Those are products. I get it. But what do I sell? So if you have bought or sold on Amazon even you, Rick, in the last 90 days, and you clicked add to carton on your mobile button, most likely, uh, or on your on your desktop, most of it's now across mobile phones, by the way, yes. um, then you have, in uh, statistically, based on what Amazon has told us, out of 10 products you purchased, seven of those went to third-party sellers. You may not even have recognized it when you clicked the add to cart button, okay? Majority of sales on Amazon.com come from third-party sellers, okay? It's estimated to be close to 76%. So the other aspect of that model is Amazon sells some of its own basic brands. They're not really competitive, have no worry about them. In fact, they're shutting them down because they manage them so poorly. Uh, And the others are corporations that are in there doing their own thing. And we don't necessarily compete directly with them because there's so much more of the market to compete with other businesses, small businesses and entrepreneurs who are out there running those private label brands, Okay, wholesaling, flipping, private labeling. We look to private label products. We're not flipping products for pure profit. We're not doing an arbitrage, retail, shop your way to wealth, online arbitrage, wholesale arbitraging, or FBA arbitraging, and these kinds of methodologies. We're building a business. We're building intrinsic IP. We're building brand and registrations and trademarks. We're building an asset, Okay, an asset that has something worth value later on. It's worth more later on when we sell it than at any time during the business building phase. All right? So we understand revenues, which everybody talks about, but who cares? That's just vanity. What we want to understand is cash flow is king and profit is sanity. So when we look at these products and those products you've purchased for the last 90 days, you want to look for products that are solution oriented. And they're typically going to be $50 to $100 to $300 in price range. When you look at the products and you go through your own history and just ask yourself a few simple questions. Why did I buy that product versus another one? Why was I willing to pay $69 instead of $39 for the other product? Why and what solution was I trying to solve by purchasing this product? Was it for myself? Was it for health? Was it for wellness? Was it for jumping higher, losing weight, gaining weight? Was it for my children? What was the solution I was trying to orient behind that product? When you start to think like a seller, you start to analyze yourself as an avatar. You start to see yourself as a profile. And in that profile, you define age, demographic, life, location, and other things that you're considering about why you, that person, bought that product and why there's millions of other people just like you who have been buying those products too. When you start to put yourself in that frame of mind, you start to discover there are products everywhere, all over you. And in fact, you probably have spot hundreds of products in the last year from Amazon and not realizing that many of them were sold by somebody like me. OK. Mm-hmm. And the end result means what? Opportunity. You should see abundance immediately in that opportunity. OK, that means there are products there for you to sell. The question then becomes, well, which one is profitable? How do I go by the numbers scientifically to prove that I should actually sell this product and I will make money doing it? Okay, Remember we talked about profit being sanity. It's the number one thing we're looking for in the product. So as we analyze Amazon, a very big storefront of products, and we're looking at our own seller history and saying, well, what could I sell? And looking into Amazon and saying, well, who's selling those products? We're going to begin looking for those products that are $50 to $100. Why? Because they're going to potentially, when the numbers pencil in correctly, have profit in them. Enough profit to support Amazon's fees, to support marketing, logistics, supply chain, cost of goods for the product, and of course, leaving what's left not a profit margin or a gross profit margin, but what's called net profit. Okay, That is the actual take home I put in my pocket for every unit that sells. So after I cover all my cost of goods and all that information, I should be able to take home a minimum of $10 in profit for every unit that sells. I preferred it to be $20 to $50 in profit per unit that sells after I've covered my marketing cost, operations, Amazon fees, and everything else. Because that is where I'm going to make money to grow the business. That's where I'm going to pay myself. It's where I'm going to keep operations going. It's going to be money I can use for additional marketing to take over competitive advantage. And so we want to look at products that have a healthy profit or net profit on them. So as we look at those products and we analyze them, there's some software and tools you can use out there to make those estimates, but it should be roughly 35% of your cost of goods for the sale of the product as a calculation, okay? So if you're going to go above 35% of all total cost of goods, you're probably running too costly. What you will notice is that any product on Amazon, $30 or less won't match up with that. Yeah. So what happens is in the 600 million products on Amazon that people wonder if they can sell in this, <laughs> to start with it, Amazon is the first channel. Now we have a multi-channel e-commerce strategy. We just start our brand on Amazon. Why do we do that? There are 200 million people coming across there every month and they're all in buy mode. So I don't have to guess whether they're buying products. And we call Amazon the add to cart button of the world, meaning the audience conversation and most of the decisions on the buying uh, process have been done and completed uh, before they show up to buy the product. They are simply validating their worldview, their solution-driven orientation, price point, and they're looking for that right product. And sometimes they'll buy ones that are 10 or $20 more than other products because they feel the value orientation matches up with the solution. So we are looking for those people. Who are they? They're about, of the 150 million Prime members, there's about 100 million of those people who buy more than $1,000 under that avatar every year from Amazon, and they are typically women, 27 to 40 plus. And they are buying the majority of those products. So we angle our products and brands towards the largest avatar, largest segment of customer buyer avatars, and we produce products in that way. So as we look at the products we produce, and we manufacture and private label for ourselves, and we put this brand out in the market that literally nobody's heard of yet, because we're leveraging similarity of those products, the familiarity of the product in Amazon, and that equation equals trust. Because we're leveraging Amazon's brand to create that trust. And like I mentioned a minute ago, some of those products you add to cart, you may not even realized while they were delivered by Amazon, they came from a third party. You just didn't understand that. So the opportunity for you as a person to build a brand no one's ever heard of and put it in the market is a great competitive advantage for anybody. For a solopreneur, a wannapreneur, an entrepreneur, a business owner who wants to extend themselves into this marketplace... Or somebody who's wanting to diversify capital, as opposed to putting it into real estate or you know the stock market, but wants to start and put it into physical products, you should see that opportunity where that buying base is and those products are, and you should understand a little bit of the numbers. So, how do the business work? The brand work? I'm going to give you a quick example. I'm up late one night. I have four daughters, and we had them all in four and a half years one of my daughters is up um, needing to be fed three in the morning. Mom is recovering from pregnancy. So I'm the one that gets up in the middle of the night. I'm the night owl. She gets up early in the morning. This is how it worked really well with this. So I'm up late, ba- baby's feeding, watching infomercials zoning out why this kid, you know, tries to finish her bottle. And here comes this commercial and it is for this uh, product. And it's this uh, belt uh, seat pet. Okay. Um, and it's go, it has, you know, the, the kids, heads are always falling over. And so this this pet is big enough to to hang on to the seatbelt and the kids can snuggle with it. And it's got these little pouches in it or whatever. Yeah. And it's called Seat Pets. And I'm looking at this infomercial and I have enough experience to realize these guys spent five hundred thousand to a million dollars to produce that infomercial. That's what it takes. And I'm thinking, dang, they're putting a lot of marketing into that product I've never heard of. Now, I'm a parent at this point, so I'm in the perception and orientation now cognitively looking at things I didn't look at before. So I stopped to look at a commercial for a kid's toy, not something I would have done without a kid, right? But that was the avatar they were shooting for. Yeah. So I get up the next morning and I call my partner. And I said, hey, I just saw this really cool product. It was up last night. It's this product called Seat Pets. I bet we could make one of these and go compete with them in the market. They got this big infomercial. I looked them up on Amazon. They don't have this really terribly big presence. They don't have a lot of reviews. They look like they're just kind of doing okay. Maybe we can beat them. Now, this is one of the first brands we really took to market. So a lot of this was, was new to us at that point. And so we took this out and we said, great. He, he took a look at it and came back the next day and said, hey, my son's really into anime. What if we take their you know pet toy, seat pet thing, and we put a bit of an anime face on it? And we take penguins and cats and we give them the bigger eyeballs and we kind of cross over that genre of, of anime with the toys. And I'm like, "Well, that's a cool idea. Let's Let's try it out. I'm not really into anime, but if you tell me it's big, then it must be big. So we went out and we had 2,000 of these hand-stitched for us, uh, manufactured out of India. And we brought 2,000 of them to market, okay? So all we did was create a better listing, had kids, had a little girl and a boy, and they were taking nice pictures. was done with an iPhone camera, literally. And we put the listing up and we wrote some nice copy or whatever. And we basically said, better than Seat Pets, it is Belt Buddies. So we created a brand called Belt Buddies. No one had ever heard of it, right? And Belt Buddies was going to compete with Seat Pets, this other brand who just spent a million dollars on an infomercial, we put it in the Amazon market, right? And we were literally better than belt buddies. We actually charged a little bit more money, a couple of dollars more per unit. Eight days later, we'd sold out 2000 units, zero advertising, just being in the market, taking advantage of people who were seeing the infomercial, coming to Amazon, excuse me, searching for Seat pets and finding belt buddies and going, oh, wait, these have an anime. They have a little character. These aren't just like, you know, traditional animal faces. These are kind of cool. And so, boom. So we ordered another two thousand. 16 weeks later we sold out the rest of that and then the process just went on scale after that we ended up selling that brand later on we leveraged ethically leveraged the traffic but we learned a lot about what amazon was doing that day we learned a lot about the psychology of the buyer we learned about creating products with no brand in 10 minutes that no one ever heard of and ethically stealing the traffic inside of amazon by just getting in the market and competing with someone on competition so we started to repeat that process and looking for ways to scale it and successfully have done that through a number of brands and ourselves and our clients to the tune of over 100 million in sales in the last uh, decade on Amazon. Following that kind of process into brand growth—that
0: is an awesome story and a great example. Okay, so what to sell and a great example of belt buddies. What's your next step?
1: So what you have to understand is what Amazon actually did. You have to understand it's a giant latent semantic search engine. What does that mean? It means it's taking words and it's turning keywords into results your results you're getting on your cell phone or products that are being presented to you and those results based on Amazon's engine's belief that you will buy that product in 30 seconds or less, that they will make the maximum amount of profit, and that the chances of you returning it are very low. There's a lot of other statistics behind that, but those are some of the basics. So it's a keyword-driven search system, all right? That means that if you are hyper-relevant to your product, we were hyper-relevant to a stuffed toy animal, literally, And we were presented in a search higher than the competitor. The algorithm was basically saying we were the most highest relevant product in demand from the customer demand coming in from the search results. So we were basically positioned with this technology, this filing system inside of Amazon, this A9 engine as it's referred to, A10 now, that to be the most hyper relevant product, hyper relevant to the search, hyper relevant to the product placement inside of Amazon. And it presented itself really great. So to learn and understand that, there's a lot of years of testing and and decades of experience that we teach our clients on how to leverage that and prime that engine correctly so it believes we're the better product. So we will sell to the engine. We will sell to the technology because it's the one doling out all the sales. And if it believes you're the better product, better brand, hyper-relevant product to the customer demand, you will simply get more of the traffic and distribution. And there are a number of things you can do to unlock that. But that leads you to a ranking and product and sales within Amazon, okay? And those things can go relatively fast, like zero to a 100,000 a month in 45 days. We've done that process repeatedly. I have plenty of testimonials to back that up case studies. Even a case study of in four months taking one of our clients to a million a month uh, and went on to take him to 5 million a month, eight months later by unlocking the traffic and distribution of demand inside of Amazon. It's a very powerful system. And there's a lot of people buying and we're selling products that just about anybody could sell or innovating them, which is very important to understand what we did with that story a minute ago is we simply innovated a product. We didn't invent anything. We didn't have to go get patents for it. We simply innovated in competition like Reebok in- innovated against Nike or CVS changed a slight variation of their tone than Walgreens or Walmart to Target. You understand? This yeah. is something you can be someone's yin and yang and make great money creating a brand that no one's ever heard of. To combine that all into the business, we call it the platinum principle. And that really is understanding, like a business, you can have a golden uh, parachute at the end of a long term and re- raise yourself up in your corporate job to CEO and become head of the corporation maybe someday if you're able to do that. And then when you retire, you get your golden parachute. right? You get the severance, the pay, the back, maybe a private jet and you hang out for a long time and that's sort of your retirement. That is sort of a very unique uh, 1% situation. If you want to take advantage of the 99% situation, you take advantage of the platinum principle, and that is you build the business, you create the wealth and generations, and then you exit it whenever you want to. And that is the business model. Build a brand and exit it in 24 months. And that's what Voltage does. We build companies, we launch, we grow, we scale them. And in 24 months, we take that asset out to market and we sell it. Okay.
0: Through a SPAC or how are you selling it?
1: We are selling it to ourselves. We're selling it into SPACs. We're selling it into private hedge funds, groups, corporations, and accredited investors. Sometimes we'll buy them ourselves. We invest in the businesses ourselves, um, but we build a pipeline of people who can go out and do the same thing and then repeat the process because that's the beauty of the model is that once we show you how to get the knowledge and correctly capitalize this, you now have a skill set to go out and make brand after brand after brand and repeat that process over and over again. Okay, There are more products than we can do in a lifetime. So we get down to which products we want to do and which brands are most profitable, have the greatest upside potential for an exit. And then we continually go after those products and brands.
0: Awesome. Wow. You make it sound so easy.
1: There's complexities and then there's simplicities. There's fundamentals and then there's advancements. Right. Um, it's not trendy marketing. It's fundamental business at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, it really is. OK. Any other insights to share on how to scale e e-commerce business?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things we will do, as I mentioned, is as e-commerce is a business model, Amazon being the first channel in the market, once a brand starts to mature, we'll multi-channel it, meaning we will take it out to Wayfair, Walmart, eBay, and mar- other marketplaces where traffic is there, maybe even Etsy, where there are other marketplaces of traffic for those brands, and it may make sense to take them to different locations based on, you know the kind of brands and products that they are. We can also take them into their own storefront, a website, like a WooCommerce or Shopify or big store, and then we can bring in a brand ambassadors. We can bring in influence marketing. We can bring you know, bring in paid traffic, ads, infomercials, radio, television, etc. Can be brought in to expand that brand into the other bed of the world. Now Amazon's about thirty eight percent of the market share, so it's a great place to start. Uh, it has actually more online market share than both Walmart and Target combined. So it's a great place to start incubating products and proving brands before moving them into mass distribution. At that point, you can go out 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, 48 months with that business model. And the more multiple channels you have, the more customer data and information you're gathering later on, the more uh, exit potential that has, the higher multiples of exit for your profit you can gain from that business. So we always want to multi-channel these businesses once we move them out to market.
0: So yeah, well, that was my next question. Is it you make a brand in step one and you take it through the process. What percentage goes to multi-brand? Is Are you taking everything or are you taking... Everything.
1: Everything is built on Amazon and chosen from the product database we have uh, for the product's competition. Upside potential, which is basically multi-channel capability. And of course, the on Amazon and off Amazon profitability of that. We don't want to become channel locked on Amazon. We don't want it to be the only segment, only brand. Even the native brand I mentioned earlier that sold for $630 million, while they were natively started on Amazon, they went out to retail and direct to consumer to pull up those additional channels. And that's one of the reasons why their valuation was so high.
0: Wow. Great career insights earlier and now great insights on how to scale an e-commerce business. If people want to learn more, where do they find you, Neil Tois?
1: well just like you said neil twa it's very small simple and easy to google you can't miss me i may be a big guy with a little name but i can be found on all social media channels you can go to voltage b2b that's b number 2b.com there's a free presentation with myself and kevin harrington he's the shark tank original shark tank and as seen on tv billionaire uh done about five billion in uh products he is a partner in voltage portfolios uh, where we do acquisitions and mergers. And we have a presentation there about 45 minutes or so of free training and insights that give a lot of details more than I just explained. Uh, plus a email sequence and training series you guys can get for free. It's worth about a thousand bucks or some training on there uh, that I give out where you guys can get some information about what we're doing, understand more of the e-commerce model. Then if it makes sense, you can reach out, uh, have a conversation with me privately and personally to see if what we're doing may be a good fit for you.
0: Okay, so Neil Twa TWA, on any social media that's right. Specifically on voltageb2b.com. Go there. Uh, if you're interested in learning how to scale a business, particularly e-commerce in this case, but any business, go get that those freebies worth up to a thousand dollars. And if you want to take the next step, then schedule a free discovery call with Neil Bois.
1: Absolutely. We can make it really simple, Rick. They can literally just text me your name, Rick, to 417-413-4209. That's 417. 417- Four one three four two zero nine, and just DM me the keyword Rick so I know that we came from this show okay. and you'll reach me personally on that business cell phone line and we'll have a quick chat there and I can send you some additional resources and information and talk to you personally.
0: Wow. Tons of value bombs on career, on business startup and then go to Neil's web- website to learn more on voltageb2b.com. All right. Neil Toile, you're the man. I uh, really appreciate you sharing your insights. Anything else in closing you want to share?
1: No, I think the... Well, just in some simple summary, if I can get my words out correctly. Um, thank you for having me on. I'm honored. I appreciate you giving me some time to speak to your people today. I think just to kind of wrap this all up, there was a book I read once upon a time that really gave me some encouragement as I was getting to the final moments within my corporate career to decide to launch out. And it was called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyways by Susan mm-hmm. Jeffries. Mm-hmm. And what it got me down to was a simple question within that book really resonated with me in terms of life choices and decisions And that is, what is the worst that could happen? What is the worst that can happen if I do this? What's the worst risk? What's the worst that can happen? And if it doesn't end in death, it means you have opportunity. Um, Even in death, there's opportunity. That's a whole nother conversation. But at the end of the line, you should understand that there Uh, The risk you may feel about trying something may uh, be less risky than the weight of where you're currently standing. So ask yourself the question, what's the worst that can happen? I have been bankrupt. I have accidentally destroyed a marriage. I have reset my life multiple times and started over from zero due to bad choices in the past that I have learned from that have gained from me, but I never uh, will go back. Somebody asked me the other day on a podcast, uh, final final moments here uh, in this conversation, asked me on a podcast, would I go back? Would I go back and tell my 21-year-old person? I would say not change a dang thing. You're going to love how it ends. So if that isn't the story of your life, then maybe it's time for you to risk something uh, in business life or whatnot. Because again, this is the one chance you get at it. Don't fear the rest of it. Just get out there and give it a shot and see what happens.
0: Oh, that's great insight. Yeah. There's so much opportunity inside being your own entrepreneur. And uh, the first step is overcoming the fear and building good plans behind it. But knowing that there is risks to everything. There's risks. Absolutely. And You've said two or three times. Yeah, that's tremendous advice. I hope from this podcast, people will not just see these ideas on how to scale an e-commerce business, but also realize and look at their own life and figure out what they really, really want to accomplish and uh, make those big decisions in their life to be financially independent and secure. And uh, so thank you for all these insights, Neil. You're the man.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: All right. Cheers.